We're in business to save the planet, and we use making clothes to do that. For over 45 years, Patagonia has committed to taking responsibility for their impact on the environment by pioneering sustainable practices and inspiring other businesses to do the same. The cure for depression is action. Every one of us has to step up and do what you can according to what your resources are. Patagonia, in business to save our home planet. Join us. You're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries, a production of Duct Tape Thin Beer, with additional support from Kuat Racks, Because You Love Your Bike, and Kicking Horse Coffee. Wake up and kick ass. Okay, it kind of pains me to share this story, but I'm going to do it. Here goes. I'm 17 years old. I'm living in the deeply mountainous state of Florida. My climbing experience is limited to trees, sets of stairs, and the occasional chain link fence. And I'm reading Into Thin Air. I know I am a cliche in the making right now. Into Thin Air is John Cracker's seminal account of survival and tragedy on Mount Everest during the 1996 season when an unforecasted storm took the lives of eight climbers. And I remember very clearly there's this point in Krakauer's story where he's made it back to his tent after summiting, and other people on the mountain are clearly in trouble. Anatoly Bukrev, one of the guides responsible for all the clients, goes back out into the storm to help the remaining climbers trapped above 8,000 meters. It's really heroic. And I have this clear memory of puffing my chest out and thinking, sheesh, John Krakauer should have gone back out there too. That's what I would have done. John, if you're listening, I'm sorry. (laughs) I was a total idiot. I knew nothing. I'm embarrassed to even voice that thought. But I did it to illustrate a point. I was so quick to Monday morning quarterback despite my complete lack of understanding and knowledge. I think the thing that really makes my skin crawl when I think about that memory is that in the 23 years since I've read that book, I've watched time and time again as people with zero understanding chime in after someone maybe even one of my friends or an acquaintance or a stranger has died in the mountains and they chime in with this canned, well, if I had been there, I would have been stronger, smarter, braver, tougher, insert whatever adjective you want. To that I would say, you have no idea what you would do, what you would feel, what you would think until you find yourself in that situation. At full volume, the power of the natural world is terrifying and the limitations of our physical form so evident. The reaction, the emotions, they are all theoretical until it's real. That's what makes survival stories so powerful. We're left with this question. What would I do? Would I make it? Would I live? And we read, we listen, because we don't really know. It's a mystery that fascinates us. Today, we present Flip of a Coin, a story about a trip of a lifetime, a 50-year storm. Some things will go wrong, and some things will go right. I'm Fitz Cahal, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries.
looking forward to like day three or four where you've like got your system dialed and you are out there and you just feel like super comfortable. This is Catherine Wyatt. Everyone calls her Chuck though. Feels like there's nothing really else in the world. It's perfect, you have everything you need. And this is Andy Wyatt. Chuck and Andy are fixtures in our Seattle outdoor community. They grew up here, they started dating when they were teenagers. They've always led super full lives. Andy owns our local gym, the Seattle Bouldering Project, which has grown to include other gyms across the country. Chuck works as an environmental researcher, integrating science into community decisions in order to achieve better outcomes for the community and the natural systems they depend on. They're smart people. They also do an incredible job of getting outside. Chuck's a skier, Andy's the climber. Both are known for being super talented, calm, and solid decision makers in the mountains. In life and the mountains, the word dialed comes to mind when I think of them. And while each of them has some pretty rad mountain accomplishments to their names, they'd never really truly taken a large trip together. And last spring, now in their early 30s, they realized this was the moment to change that. Chuck loved skiing, and Annie loved being way out in the remote wilderness. There's a place where both those things are achievable in spades, Alaska. I can't think of a trip that we've been on that would put us so remote and so disconnected and just with me and Chuck completely alone in uh, very removed from anything human built. They dove into the research, called friends, poured over maps, studied snow stability, aspects, and sun exposures of the glaciers. Eventually, they decided they would charter a bush plane base camp on the Powell Glacier, a massive ice drainage about an hour north of Anchorage, and ski the peaks that rose along the glacier. Andy and Chuck ski a lot, but this trip, it was going to be different. In mid-April of 2018, they headed out. From the town of Palmer, they took a bush plane soaring over wetlands, tundra, and eventually to the lip of a massive glacier. After one big bend, the glacier shot straight into the alpine peaks as far as they could see. After the plane dropped them off, Andy and Chuck were completely alone. They dialed in their base camp, setting up a cook tent and a sleeping tent, and then started to explore. You're really on your own, not just physically, but in terms of figuring it all out, there's so much less information. So it's a pretty big leap from going into the backyard here, where you have a lot of information about what the conditions are like, what the terrain is like, and then all of a sudden, there's a big step up in terms of your responsibility and what you need to figure out, just the two of us. Yeah, I think that's definitely a, a draw of the trip and that problem-solving piece, like just the amount of planning that we did going into it and making lists and checking them twice and like making sure we had all of our bases covered. You don't get to look up where is there a crevasse and you don't know if somebody's walked across it a bunch of times, so there were some notable times when we, we knew we were over crevasses and we didn't know what the stability of the bridge over it was and I would spend a lot of time <laughs> probing and like hesitating a ton because it's just your decision. The snow was so bad <laughs> in one spot that basically the snow collapsed like but it was a snow stability thing but Andy thought he was like falling into I kept feeling like I was falling into the crevasse. Like, Collapsing, Every so. time it kept collapsing and I was really freaked yeah. out. <laughs> it's also kind of, it's cool to have the whole area and you, like Andy's saying, you don't know anything about it. Like we didn't even know the names of these things. Like we named all of the side glaciers. We're like, oh, that one's like Hump Glacier. That one's Pooh Glacier. Like that one's Cookie Glacier. Like look, 
looking around and saying like, oh, like that looks like that might be fun today. Let's go poke over there and knowing nothing about it. They skied some great lines, saw some spectacular views. Avalanche conditions were a little bit touchy, but they made it work. Those first few days, they had absolutely amazing weather. You wake up, you drink coffee in the sun. By the time you're ready to tour, you're like in a t-shirt. Sleeping bags are like, you know, drying out on poles. For the most part, really, really beautiful and great. had been using our inreach to get weather forecasts. And we knew that a storm was supposed to blow in in the afternoon of the 24th, I think it was, which was a Wednesday. And we were gonna get up early-ish for that trip and try to sneak in the tour before the weather came in. Instead, we were woken up very abruptly as it felt like the tent was getting smashed by a hurricane. And immediately, you know, those, the, the previous thoughts of skiing are completely out the window and we knew we were in a bad situation very, very quickly. 6 a.m., out of our bags, and then like immediately getting fully dressed. Then we spent the next couple hours reinforcing everything. Somebody had texted us the day before and said it was gonna be, what did the, what did like the text 30, say, like 40, mile an 40 hour. 50 mile an hour winds, and it was much, much worse than that. So we we knew we needed to prepare for a very bad situation. We, we packed a bag with a few liters of water, uh, extra gloves, extra goggles. Uh, we had on all of our clothes, and then we put our sleeping bags in there. Everything that we would sort of be our survival kit. They reinforced their guy lines which they'd already dug several feet under the snow and doubled them up to shield against the wind. The cook tent flattened almost immediately, so they were left with their single shelter. The wind like, just kind of continued to pick up and then we were taking turns exiting the tent and like digging outdoors and like moving snow away from, you know, like kind of trying to maintain the tent and you just realize you're like, oh, what was a half an hour between digging sessions is now 15 minutes. Trying to crawl out of the tent you'd get snow into your layers, which was not good. You couldn't see anything. You had to stay pretty low to not get blown down the glacier. You're really blinded, just kind of feeling around outside of the tent and trying to push snow off. Like when you're in 80 mile an hour winds, like what on a glacier, what is it like to just stand up? You're not standing. You're I think like, it was a lot windier than that. Yeah. You're like crouching, crawling, army crawling. You, you can't stand up. Pretty much just crawling. And you're like wearing goggles outside, like everything's up. But then you can't see because your goggles are completely messed up. Yeah. Inside the tent, the space became smaller and smaller. The walls are closing in, the wind is stacking the snow against them. They'd ram their bodies against the edge of the tent to keep the snow from boxing them in, but it was really clear that it was a losing battle. It wasn't too long before we realized, okay, this isn't going to last for more than a couple of hours. And so, the moment at which you realize you're going to be outside the tent and you're not going to have any shelter uh, was a significant one. I remember one moment super vividly. It was mid-morning 
while there was still almost standing room in the tent, just hugging for a long time before we sort of snapped into action. I don't know why, but it just stands out. I think there was a moment where we were both understanding the gravity of the situation and we were just hugging. Then the tent began ripping apart. The fly tore, and then the poles started violently breaking. Andy grabbed their satellite device and messaged the pilot who had flown them in. He typed, we need a rescue. And he said, I will try to get a military you know, Black Hawk helicopter in to rescue you right away. I'm on it. And then followed up with, there's no break in the weather for many days. That was a very powerful moment. Yeah. At that moment, I, I imagined us trying to survive for many days. And that was super daunting to think that my wife and I there would fight for our lives for many days was really intimidating. Mm -hmm. Forecasters underestimated the storm's potency. Down in Anchorage, the winds tore off the roofs of buildings, toppled trees. Up high, the weather service estimated winds were beginning to hit 80 miles an hour and beyond during powerful gusts. Andy and Chuck scrambled to think of other options. Had they passed a big rock or cave on their way in? How far would it be to get all the way off the glacier? But as the wind kept picking up, they knew walking, even standing, would not be an option. We were pretty much fully buried in the tent with snow above us and on all sides except for one spot in the tent and at the last minute I cut a hole in that in the fly and we just slithered out. Catherine passed me the duffel we had put together and I held onto that and then she followed and then we were both just laying on the snow. I remember Catherine I told you stay here for a second and I slithered along the snow about 10 or 15 feet away and look, trying thinking that maybe I would find something <laughs> different than just flat ground, but I didn't. And so, sure enough, we just said okay, and uh, we had to very carefully get inside of our sleeping bags. I mean, it, there was there was really nothing else to it. Catherine was holding the duffel and unzipped it, and we grabbed one bag out, uh, and it was flapping in the winds and uh, furiously. And we were able to both sneak into our bags and zip them up and put the duffel at our heads. That was it for a long time. One of the things that is interesting about it not being a single super fast traumatic event is that it, it kind of comes and goes in waves. I'm just going to be calm, let's like talk through our options, let's, what are we doing now, what should we be doing in an hour, and then you just, like I would just get hit with these waves where you like kind of pick your head up and you're like, oh my god, I am super scared, this is super scary, and then like Hopefully the other person is in a really calm <laughs> moment at that time and they're like, okay, it's okay, like let's take a deep breath. We're good right now, let's just be thoughtful. And then the roles reverse at some point. There's so much unknown to it. It was mentally challenging to wrestle through that and to, on the one hand, just 
do whatever we could do and think about what we could be doing and then also just having a huge amount of fear and realization that you might die. Back in civilization, their pilot Mike and close friend Chris were hard at work trying to coordinate a rescue with the Alaska State Troopers and the military. They'd update Andy, send him a message saying, I think we have a team, helicopter is ready, and then nothing would happen. The weather was too bad, the helicopter couldn't take off. Throughout the course of the day and into the night, laying out in the open glacier, Andy and Chuck got colder and colder and tried to remain hopeful. They kept getting those kind of messages. Helicopters ready. We're coming. Followed by radio silence. Around midnight, the team in Anchorage managed to get a Pavehawk, a military helicopter, into the air. No one really knows how high the wind speeds got that night, but Pavehawk helicopters can fly in up to 90 miles an hour of wind. And after getting blasted off a ridge, they had to turn back as they entered the glacier. At 1 or 2 in the morning, Andy and Catherine got a final message that said, we're not coming to get you. I mean, you start quite cold, and then you start shivering, and then you start sort of violently shivering, and you kind of can't control your body. A lot of that moisture that we took on earlier that was kind of wet froze, and eventually there was basically a puddle of frozen ice in the bottom of my bag that I was trying to avoid. So I ended up kind of just laying on this layer of ice on the inside of my bag. You're lying, like huddled in the fetal position on your side, and my whole body's cramping. I lost feeling in my feet, and then eventually just kind of laying on my left side. I eventually lost feeling in the left side of my body, my leg and my arm. And at some point, you know, the shivering actually does stop. It was very challenging to breathe but we wanted to close up our bags as much as possible to preserve any warmth. But it was sort of like you do it a little too much and then you're about to asphyxiate and you just open it up a tiny bit. So this kind of awful experience of being terribly cold and asphyxiating and riding that line and then... Um, yeah, I think the feeling of feeling like I was gonna suffocate was like in terms of a physical feeling, the most like haunting. Because yeah. you just like feel the snow, you, there's snow all on top of you and then you can just feel the snow building around your head. I had like one hand sort of like up to kind of try to give me a little bit of space. But yeah, like Andy's talking about, you know, you're like trying to keep snow out and then you're like, <gasps> I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And you like, you know, push the snow away from like the little opening and then like all this snow comes into your bag. And so you're like trying to wait as long as possible to re reduce the amount of snow that's getting into your bag. Chuck and Andy lay side by side but the wind filled the crack between their bodies with so much snow that they couldn't feel each other's warmth and could barely hear each other yelling over the roar of the storm. So we would just occasionally like be like, I love you! And like you'd like wait for the other person to respond and that was kind of like you would just yell that back and forth every once in a while. Once we were in our bags for a really long time, that's when I thought really entirely about life and death. And I was really happy to be able to do that. It's important to me. You know, the most significant thoughts were really around my family and thinking about how my body would be recovered and 
the grief that my family would go through and how their lives would move forward throughout the years and just uh, really diving into those thoughts and embracing them, um, thinking about my other family, my wife's family and how they would go through that process, uh, our friends. And I thought about that for hours and hours and hours. deep right now. Like, I can't get into my headspace. I have to focus on my toes. Like I learned the alphabet backwards, like wiggling my toes. Like I was very focused on the like physicality of that moment and sort of in some ways resistant to like, getting into my emotional space and like sort of letting that dictate my experience. It's amazing how much you appreciate living. I just remember thinking about how grateful I would be for just the most simple things in life, just to be back home, to work a day, to sit in the office and write some emails. I don't care what it is. And then, wow, what it would be like to just be able to be with my family again. The best thing you can do is steady your breathing, wiggle your toes, and like think good thoughts. The other communication that came through Annie's spot device that night, apart from the team trying to launch a rescue, was from his identical twin brother, Jay. Started texting with him around 11 or 12 o'clock at night would be my guess. And uh, those were tough messages. They were really loving. You know, my family at the time had all gathered in my family house in Seattle and they were all together and they knew what was going on. And the messages that I got from my brother were so upsetting because it just sinks in that much more what you're doing to them. So the messages that were from my brother were, they were nice. And another nice component to it was that we were able to say nice things to one another because we might have died, you know, and to have the opportunity to say those things before we would have died were nice. I mean, they were incredibly valuable and important. And there was an interesting dance between the sort of spiritual side of things and that we have strength and we're going to persevere and we're going to survive and the strength I got from those messages and then also moments where the reality dawns on you and those things might be all for naught. So it's an interesting back and forth between the, the spiritual power and energy, and then the, the sobering reality of, I don't know if that matters. And I found myself constantly going back and forth between those two states of, of energy and, and spirit and reality. What do you mean by reality? Like that none of it matters? That like what you're, do you mean like, that it doesn't if, you're thinking, the if you're thinking good thoughts, like it, yeah. if you're dead, it doesn't matter? Yeah. It's hard not to let your mind go there, too. I also felt guilty about having my wife next to me. I'm sure we both felt guilt about yeah. having our partners, the, the person we love more than anyone, next to us, and whether or not they would die or not, or one of us would yeah, die. that was the like, worst-case scenario. 
at around three in the morning, and he lost consciousness. Find out what happens after the break. Support for the diaries comes from the good people at Patagonia. They've just re-released their award-winning film, Damn Nation. The documentary explores the shift in perspective from viewing big dams as engineering wonders towards the growing awareness that our future is closely tied to the health of our rivers. Directors Ben Knight and Travis Rummel deliver a thought-provoking film. It's awesome and funny. Katie Lee is my favorite part of it. Watch Damnation for free on Patagonia's YouTube channel or at patagonia.com slash films. Enjoy. Additional support for the diaries comes from Kicking Horse Coffee. Their founders dreamed of waking up the world with 100% organic, 100% fair trade coffee. So they roasted small batches of beans in their garage and hand delivered coffee from the back of a station wagon. 20 years later, the garage is a little bit bigger and there's a lot more beans, but Kicking Horse Coffee remains committed to the same good values. Dream, then do. Find it at Amazon or kickinghorsecoffee.com. And support comes from Kuat Racks, who have been with us for over a decade. Kuat began as an idea for a better way to transport bikes in 2008 and has evolved into a thriving company that creates high-end and awesomely engineered hitch racks, roof racks, and accessories that push the envelope of innovation. Kuat, because you love your bike. I don't remember it. I don't recall it. It was really weird. It was sort of like when you get put down at the you know, before surgery and you, you really actually black out. I didn't realize that he was asleep because I think at that point we were kind of in our own worlds and it wasn't until I heard the helicopter coming up the valley. And I was like, Andy, Andy, like just screaming at him. And the fact that he wasn't immediately responding was just pretty terrifying. The team in Anchorage had finally managed to mount a rescue. The winds had lulled slightly, dropping to 50 or 60 miles per hour, and a team of military-trained pararescuers, otherwise known as PJs, set out to find Chuck and Andy. As the helicopter approached, Chuck managed to wake up Andy. Seeing this spectacular flying beast with its lights coming up the valley, and it tried to land, and it, it got hit by a gust of wind, and it almost crashed. We heard later that it was you know, the most difficult landing in 10 years, and they had one of the best pilots of the country and so they almost crashed and they went back down valley and their heart sank a bit because we thought that they were going to bail um it turns out they were dumping their fuel which is makes me really uncomfortable makes me really sad to to hear but they they dumped their fuel because they needed to be lighter weight and they came in again and they just stomped hard down onto the snow the doors flung open and they turned on these lights they were green you know sort of like green headlights to sort of like signal us and we saw them just waving their arms, and we both just sprinted into the helicopter, and they closed the doors. It's like the end of a race line, like a long race where you're just like, and like all, you know, like suddenly all of this like emotion hits you, and you're like, the weeping without the tears where your like whole body just sort of heaves. The rescuer, Sonny, helped pull Chuck and Andy on board. There was this like immediate sense of relief, and I remember looking down at him and like noticing his wedding ring and being like, oh, this guy has a family. Like, learned later he has like a nine-week-old at home. Like, this guy is out here in heinous conditions to save our asses. It's kind of amazing how distant the survival becomes the moment that it's all over. 
that transition from I'm not sure if we're gonna live to we're completely safe. It is hard to know, but the fact that you don't know says something, in my opinion. I think you know when you're going to survive pretty well. I'm not sure if it was two or three more hours or two or three more days, because you don't know says that you're pretty close. We later talked to our PJ a couple of days later when we visited him on the base, and he said after I checked out your guys' condition in the helicopter, I, I was sure you didn't have more than a few hours left. After a few hours in the hospital, Annie and Chuck checked out in good condition. No frostbite, no permanent physical damage. A few days later, the storm broke, and they were able to fly back to the glacier to retrieve their gear, which, although torn to shreds, had been perfectly preserved under the snow where they had left it. They packed everything up and headed back to Seattle. One of my sisters wasn't ready to see me for a couple of days, and that pain that I put her through and my mom through it does deepen that experience with your family coming back and seeing how upset people were. Could you, could you share what you texted back with your family? Hmm. Let me go look at one of them. See, maybe, maybe there's like one, one or two I would share. Here's a message from Jay. It says, Andy, I love you more than anything in the world, and I need you to make it back. I am right next to you right now. Don't give up. Keep fighting. You're the strongest person I know, and you are coming back. Stay strong. Push hard. You and Chuck are the most powerful duo in the world. Laura and I are in your old room at 135. It's warm. Hang tight and we're going to get you out. I think that he and I understand each other better than you know anyone and, and knew exactly what one another was feeling and when he said those things I I knew how he felt and uh, and I knew how much he did need us to come back alive and and we do have a very special relationship because of being identical twins and having grown up you know completely together as, as best friends. Do you feel like it impacted your guys' relationship at all? Did things change or things shift? Yeah, I think we're, it makes you closer. <laughs> it's it's kind of simple. If you go through an experience like that and you come out of it together, it creates a bond. Yeah, I definitely feel like it brought us closer together and recognizing the 
have enormous power of a strong partnership and like, being there for each other in very literal and figurative ways. Did you feel like you learned anything about the other person in that process? Yeah, I'll, I'll say no to that question. I mean, I, obviously we know each other incredibly well. Spent <laughs> more than 50% of our lives together. And no, it was, it was Catherine out there. And she's insanely tough and amazing. And I don't feel like I learned anything new about her because I already knew how amazing she is and the way that she acted and how, how much fortitude she had how intelligent and smart she was, and how capable, and how composed. All of those things I already knew. That's enough. Thank you, honey. That's very nice. I accept the risks that I take, and it's, it's pretty well calculated. And this is a great example of, I don't think we did anything overly overly dangerous and we got into a you know 50-year storm I know if I'm doing something and I'm at a point where I could take a little more risk or be a little safer I think about how upset my family was and would be if I had died and it it limits what I do enormously as it should and I think that's a phenomenal thing I might say it was a, a flip of a coin as to whether or not we sort of made it throughout the entirety of the night and into the morning. And if we had, I know that we would have been very debilitated. So it was pretty close. Mm -hmm. You know, just countless stories of, and then they got sucked in in bad weather and like, you know, they found their bodies later and like those. And you do you, die. Yeah. yeah. I think that piece of Gratitude is definitely something that we both carry with with us. I think that's something we've always been really appreciative of our families and our communities and these amazing lives that we get to live. And this was just all the more reinforcement like to bring that gratitude into every moment because we could not be here. And we have amazing lives that we get to live and that's really special. It's hard to be resentful of anything in life when you're so grateful to be alive. Thank you, Annie and Catherine, for sharing your story. Annie and Catherine continue to be eternally grateful to their family and friends who endured a challenging night not knowing if they'd make it home. And I just want to say thanks to the people who worked to get them out safely. To see images from their trip, follow us on Instagram at dirtbag underscore diaries. Music today from Sergei Karamazov and Little Glass Men. The tracks are courtesy of Free Music Archives or the artists themselves. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song. You can find the links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode was produced by Cordelia Zars, Becca Cajal, and me, Fitz Cajal. You have been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in.